to the Inspiring Sustainability Podcast. And today, I am delighted to introduce Ken. Hi, my name is Ken Webster. I'm Head of Innovation at the Alan MacArthur Foundation here in the Isle of Wight. And uh, thanks, Adam, for taking a bit of time to have a chat with me. Uh, we, we work on circular economy, as you, as you probably know, as you clearly do know. And um, I you know, want to get into some of the questions you might have. Great stuff. I'm really looking for that because... In our kind of pre-conversation, I was uh, really looking forward to maybe searching for where you see there's some circular tipping points, because realistically, that is something that really fits within the theme of this podcast of inspiring sustainability, and also what are the game changers out there of how we can get things so that systems are designed in a way that enables true sustainability and, and the circularity. Um, yeah, yeah. With you on that one. Where do you want me to start? <laughs> well, I think one of the things that we, in our pre-conversation, we discussed what it is, is a, it's a bit of a three-two-one, because what you talked about was that there was, uh, you mentioned there was three main trends that you'd like to talk about, two strands um, with, that will illustrate that, but then also there's, uh, to start off actually, there's uh, one very quick elevator pitch summary of for those who don't know, what is the circular economy in like 30 seconds? Okay, I think I can, I can do it in 30 seconds or less, I hope. The obvious answer is the circular economy is not a linear one. It's not take, make and dispose. And it's, and it's done so by um, making it circular or closing the loop, not by tidying up and uh, trying to reduce waste all the, time, but all the time, but trying to design out problems so that we have a very productive circular system. And uh, that's what the excitement is at the moment. It's a, a practical approach to uh, creating a better world. Excellent. That's a great summary. Thank you. So then, so let, let us know, what are those three main trends that you uh, would like to share with us? Um, I, I take this from the Institute of Manufacturing. They had a, three little phrases, which I'm quite fond of at the moment. They said it's closing the loop, which is, you know, connecting making waste into food, sort of making sure that we design systems to connect up so that materials flow continuously if they can. The second one was slow the flow, which is shift towards selling services rather than products and making sure we get extended product life out of the, out of the durables that we do have. And the third one was narrowing the resource loops. What they mean by that is we've got a real profusion and a complexity of materials at the moment. Whereas it makes it easier to deal with if we have a simpler palette of materials which are more flexible in their use. So that's the three things. Close the loop, slow the flow, and uh, narrow the, the, the resources and materials loops. So tell me a bit more, actually, just because uh, I think there's been a lot of talk about the closing the loop, definitely, and then yeah. slowing the So tell me a bit more about the, the, the services rather than products, just a kind of the, a little bit of theory, um, because I, I know what I'm looking forward to is actually the practical applications, which are the two, yeah. two strands, the pla which practical applications. But just give me yeah. a tiny bit of theory on the, the, the slowing right. the flow. Well... In a contemporary world, we've had a, a big shift, of course, towards digital. This is perhaps the key to unlocking some of this potential, particularly for business. And uh, digital enables, enables us to, to see how machines are working, to track their position, to track how well they're holding up, or rather uh, how, uh, whether there are problems coming up. I'll just give an example from Rolls-Royce. For years, they've been able to track 
their engines in flight, so that they know better than the pilot the exact conditions of that engine. And so they can schedule in servicing much more smoothly and efficiently, and therefore that's that dealt with by selling them a maintenance service. Yes. So they pay by the hour mm. uh, for that service, so that it's, uh, if you like, extending the life of those engines and hopefully making them as safe as they traditionally are, and of course they are. Uh, but it's an effective way of dealing with large durables is to put them into service and you don't sell the product so much, although the um, Rolls-Royce do sell the engines, they have a bundle with it, mm. which is this overall maintenance service. So this can apply to all sorts of things now, everything from autonomous vehicles which are coming along to monitoring your washing machine to see if it's working optimally and uh, then able to, to notify the person who uh, rented you the washing machine or sold it you, uh, that, that, that is due to have some attention. Right. I mean, the, the firm Bundles in uh, in the Netherlands does this. They don't sell you the machine. They they provide it as a subscription service every month, including all the repairs, and it can include the, the detergent as well. So you know you've always got a highly effective um, system running. So this is one of the big opportunities about if you like extending product life, uh, many firms are imagining they can change their business model not to sell just more and more and more, but to provide the utilization or access to assets and, and large durables in a different way. So that gets you that extended product life and is very good in terms of resources because it's not take, make and dispose now. Mm. It's provide it, maintain it, and, and you sell the service. This is what customers want. They don't want a washing machine. They want clean clothes. And uh, unless you actually collect washing machines, now you're, you're a bit specialist in that <laughs> way. But most people just want the clean clothes or the chilled food. They don't want a refrigerator. They want that service. Yeah. People people be able to articulate business models increasingly around that proposal. Excellent. And so then... But a little bit more on the theory, because it's not something I've actually uh, heard of directly, but I'm sure that the, the, what's behind it I've possibly understood is narrow the resource loops, that number three that you mentioned. Yeah. This is the idea that uh, we tend to complicate materials, make them more complex, because we, we are seeking a certain function out of it. But many more people, particularly in the biomimicry area and others, are saying, well, Nature works with quite a limited palette of materials. Nature has a limited number of polymers, for instance. And what it does, it varies the structure to get the performance it wants, uh, or it has evolved that way. So using structure differently, and now we've got 3D printers and more sophisticated ways of putting materials together, there's lots of research going on into using form um, to influence what the function is. Hmm. And um, this is this is not a, a huge uh, area at the moment because we still seem to be making things in a more complex way with materials. But if you make them more complex, it's hard to disassociate them into their separate parts in hmm. order to effectively uh, return the flow. So it is synergistic with the other two things, extend product life, close loop, and, and if you make materials... Uh, simpler or differentiate by form, you've got a better chance of getting them back in a way you can do something with. That sounds great. Okay, so 
So that's a, a good sort of uh, review of a bit of a little bit of theory there. I know there's a lot more theory out there, but I think one of the things that I'm really interested in at the moment around circularity is um, that there's actually now organisations, businesses, and and also policy backing that up, which is driving that so that it's we're, we're starting to see that there's potential the tipping points that I was talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm really excited to find out about the, the sort of two main areas that you were suggesting yeah. where, uh, that, that that might be being represented. Yeah, the, the two main areas are whether the, whether the materials flow is back through the biosphere, you know, whether things are going to be biodegraded and rebuilt through the living systems, because that's, that's one safe way of bringing things back. Yeah. And the other way is through human artifice, you know, it's a, it's a technical cycle. These are sort of synthetic materials which we put together that won't go through the uh, biodegradability and all the rest of it. So you need to distinguish those two pathways. But I just wanted to share a couple of examples in each pathway to show that innovation is happening at all of the different scales. I'm going to start way, way away in Brazil where you've got Leontino Balbo. And he, on a huge scale, I mean, talking about tens of thousands of hectares, has managed to uh, tweak and improve the soil by introducing the right sort of fungi, experimenting with how you, um, how you manage the soil so that he's getting a, a very high level of fertility out of the soil, how he, how he puts back the waste, um, sugarcane cuttings, how that's done, even how the, the, the tractor moves across the surface. He's got much bigger tires so it doesn't exert so much pressure. He's rebuilding soil health, and over a period of nearly 17 years, he's, well, it's a little bit less than that, but he's now got it working, and, and he describes it as taking 17 years from start to finish. He's able to produce sugar, a monocrop, very productively, using insights from living systems to, if you like, regenerate the soil. So he really cuts down on uh, and eliminates most of the, the artificial inputs that you traditionally associate. And so you've got a regenerative agriculture at one end producing top quality monocultures outputs, uh, yet with the quality of the nearby forest in terms of the soil, soil quality is almost up to that level. Mm. Then you might move into the more urban area. These are sort of innovative things. Uh, Lufa Farms, LUFA in Montreal, they're doing a lot on rooftop farming, but they use hydroponic systems, which isn't new in itself, but they have really refined the system, both in terms of cutting down the, num the amount of um, nutrients that are in the cycle, because they can recapture whatever they need, cutting down the water cost, designing the building, the, the greenhouse structure in a super light way, and also organizing a direct producer-to-customer food system. So you're able, to, and they've been able to demonstrate at scale, a very effective urban agricultural systems. And then going a little bit further, so you're getting this um, urban agriculture thing really growing quite rapidly. And at the final end of things, using data, because data and control technology really helps with the urban agriculture, the farming, because they're able to control the nutrient flows and the ambient temperatures just as they wish. Now they're using data analytics in a system called Winnowed, W-I-N-N-O-W, it's a new business established in 2013, which compares, uh, this is in the hospitality trade, 
the sales with the expected food waste. Mm. And by a simple logging and comparative system, they've been able to achieve, uh, for the firms that are working with Winnow, easily 50% waste uh, reduction. And um, that's been surprising in a way because they've even got as high as 70% waste reduction because the hospitality uh, industry tends to overproduce. And this seems to be a system uh, of revealing where the waste is going and then enabling people to do something about it. So you've got, in a way, um, systems thinking with Leontino Palbo, and you've got the digital revolution in different ways, going right through to things like hospitality. Well, that's the bio side of things, if you like. And the technical side of things, you've always had a circular economy operating with big big objects, you know, like the caterpillar tractors, earth-moving stuff, trains, aircraft, even I have to say military equipment, they've often been refurbished, rebuilt and whatever, but the ability to do that in a sophisticated way and to improve what's there by adding different, more modern, digitally enhanced control technologies is very significant. So you've got a resurgence in the interest in uh, remanufacturing and refurbishment because it's really very, very good for these large, durable objects. And people are extending that down into smaller things now. I, I mentioned before getting, um, getting your washing machine as a service. We're also getting things like lighting as a service now, so that the extended product life you might get and the ability to refurbish and replace. Philips, a Philips subsidiary, offers lighting as a service where you don't buy the light bulbs, you just, you, what you do is you negotiate for the amount of lighting you wish to have in a certain space and they guarantee that that happens. Right. And so they can invest in extended product life, top quality light bulbs and still make more money and sell the service more cheaply than, than you having to buy them. Shippol Airport has about three million light bulbs uh, done in this way in, in one of their lounges. Uh, well, not just one of their lounges, in several of their lounges. And um, the last one I wanted to bring up with the, with the more technical side is um, you can even rent clothes now. There's, there's firms like Mud Jeans in Holland and Rent the Runway, which are really exploring subscription services for clothing. Right. And um, you can see how this gets uh, the use of materials and resources can be much more effective with these sorts of innovations coming along. And the uh, and have you got any uh, sort of illustrations of because what I liked about that was the you, you talked about Winnow which actually I'm going to be and seeing an event uh, soon which uh, Winnow is going to be on it and because the, the event is called the Fast Five and it's five it's focusing on it's going to be every quarter in London and it's going to be uh, focusing on the five fastest growing uh, circular economy enterprises uh, in mainly in the UK. Um, and Winnow is actually going to be one of the first ones we identified them very early as being in yeah. there. So that's, it's, it's very exciting with that. Yeah. Um, and it's actually been done with the uh, Circular Economy Club, um, yeah. which uh, there's, there's representations throughout the world of those. London's a particularly strong area for that. And it's a voluntary organisation. I encourage the listeners, if you are interested in anything to do with circular economy, find out if there is a, uh, a chapter in uh, your local town. Um, 
but because um, they did a, a mapping session recently. Is that, is that something that you've had, had anything to do with, Ken? I, I wasn't in that session, but I know it's, it was in Brighton and Hove, and mm. I've, got, I've got the printout for his Peter Desmond, I think, and uh, his colleagues. And there were about 150 initiatives listed in that mapping uh, survey of the Brighton and Hove district. Some are tightly local, some are broader. Bundles is mentioned there. Yeah. But that's really interesting because they're not all totally circular economy initiatives, but they are ones which bring in various aspects, those three elements that I was talking about earlier. Mm. They're either about, you know, closing the loop or um, repair, refurbishment and so on. They're, they're, they're making the both the economic, social and environmental cases for this sort of activity. And so there's a lot of interest in, in, in this area, and it's great to see this sort of uh, mapping going on from, because from it it can only, it'll only increase the, the interest and opportunities available to many more uh, not only straightforward businesses but uh, local governments mm. and social enterprises, not for profit that's a big growth area in all of this by the way is trying to close the loop more locally trying to provide abilities say with platform cooperatives to, to communicate and collaborate around different projects. So uh, it's a very exciting time, both from big business and down right through to, to non-profits and the social enterprise there. Definitely. And so one of the things, obviously, that we're going to get businesses growing fast and the circular economy uh, starting to become the way that economy is done uh, and taking oh. over from the linear. Once demand starts uh, creating... Um, have you got any thoughts on about uh, the ways that we could stimulate demand in a way that kind of gets the, the pace up on, on creating that? Yeah, that, that's, the pace thing is really interesting because we're locked into a linear economy at the moment. And, mm. and people say to me, where's the tipping point then? Where's this point where it will all fall into place? But sometimes those comments are a bit like, can I go to a different supermarket and take circular economy off the shelf and it'll mm. be all... You know, it's my new breakfast cereal or something. Now, I think I'd say most people understand this is going to take some time. And it's going to take action at different levels. It's going to require that. And one of the, the, the well, there are three basic levels I see it might be happening at. One is the individual. The one is the more, um, the non-profit social enterprise thing. And the other one is, is business-driven in the more traditional sense. Now, all of these are important. That's uh, pretty obvious. But... Paradoxically, I would say that from a circular economy point of view, it's about designing a system that works. Mm. And it's not so much, oh, you've got to be a really good consumer. Well, that would really help, but we've had that green consumerism thing. And while it's spread quite extensively, it's really against the grain because the individual is really constrained by what the system conditions are. I think we're realizing that more and more. Mm. They, you know, it's, it's a bit like saying, Perkins, it's climate change is your fault. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's not something that an individual can fix. That's, that's pretty clear. And I don't, I think a lot of individuals are not happy to wear that much responsibility. Yeah. They are happy to act productively and positively when the system conditions are enabling rather than disabling and so that means that yes there are Walter Stahl talks about tax shifting away from people why would you tax renewables like people and, and move it on to non-renewables 
mm. everything from fossil fuel to minerals, etc. Let's shift the taxes around to encourage them to incentivize this sort of change. And it also comes with um, people talking about, well, we need more of this grassroots infrastructure that really helps people create positive change. Uh, there's smatterings of them everywhere. You know, maker labs, community kitchens, local currencies, and so on that help improve exchange, turn waste into food, create small businesses. But there is a role for infrastructure there to enable this sort of impulse that's happening at the, at the grassroots and the social enterprise and the non-for-profits to make it easier for them to do things mm. that they think are important. So you're enabling infrastructures. You've got possibly tax shifting at the top level. And in the middle of the sandwich, if you like, you've got business which is faced with the problem. Not only are resource prices very volatile, they also want a better relationship with their customers because this is an era of pretty low demand and economic growth. So they would rather see if they can get a more long-lasting relationship with some co customers by offering a service rather than some product that they've produced in huge quantities and they're finding it hard to sell. It would make sense for some of them to orientate their business rather differently and get the benefits of resource conservation, better yeah. relationships with the customer, and hopefully a cheaper service to the customer as well. So the combination of these three things should bring about, though one doesn't know when, a tipping point. And you could probably add in finance there. Finance would need to be more patient and orientated towards if you like, um, a production uh, rather than um, potentially, uh, as it is now, it's rather orientated towards assets. Yes. And, and so we need a more productive economy, which is enabled at different levels. But I'm pleased to say that most people I talk to are happy not to say, oh, it's all down to the individual. Mm. It's, it's, it's the individual will have a role, but within an enabling system, which is broadly the circular economy in action. So what you're doing is giving some, uh, you know, there's some really good examples there of uh, how, to some extent, individuals through, you know, things as you say, maker labs, local currencies, they've kind of got off their ass and got going on trying to create something like this. There's also businesses, big ones, small ones, um, such as uh, Philips and uh, Winnow at, uh, you know, different yeah. scales. Um, but then... On a kind of more either regional or national scale, uh, where are you seeing just indications of kind of like policy change, etc., which might then give us some hope that there's going to be a tipping point in the future where, for example, the, the taxation uh, challenge, which you identified, is something that's not going to happen, uh, certainly in the UK, for example, uh, in the next a uh, few years, but it, it might happen somewhere down the line because we're kind of seeing either in other countries or in the UK uh, some some sort of policy changes which is, uh, are starting to be, uh, toll the bell um, of you the linear economy. Let me just jump in on this because sometimes we think of policy as something that somebody chooses to do in, in, in power mm. and then, um, and then we're, we're sort of grateful for it if it's in the direction we like. Let me just flip it over a bit. Now, we're pretty sure that, according to people like Guy Standing at, um, in the University in London, uh, he, he's been uh, suggesting that the economy is splitting between those who are salaried, the salariat, if you like, the top 10, 15 percent of people, and the precariat, those people who are working on contracts, zero-hour, short-term contracts, even if they're very well qualified, they might have very 
they might be self-employed. And so, just ask the question of yourself, um, who exactly are we going to get the income tax from? Because the middle class, according to his description, is shrinking. Mm. So that's the tax base shrinking. And government depends upon the tax base, we're told, to do its expenditure. I'm not quite sure I agree with all of that. I'm quite a big fan of something called monetary theory, but I won't go into it. But let's assume that's reasonable for the moment. So they don't have the tax base they used to have. And they've also got all of these people who would like to get involved with things, uh, productive things in their community, but they don't have a foundation income on which to do it. They've only got a welfare net, which is quite scrappy and sketchy in places and quite hard to negotiate. And this is why discussions around something like a basic dividend are popping up more and more in Europe and here. So that the question is not, oh, will they choose to do it? It's how are they going to make sure that these businesses that we talk about have got customers? Mm. How are we going to guarantee that we can go to the cafes, mm. that we can do something? You know, it's, it's, it's all right saying, okay, we, uh, we might um, reduce taxes uh, to encourage um, innovation, but actually income depends upon expenditure. There's a circular flow there with the money, and uh, if the old world has disappeared where everybody is pretty well full-time employed to one where, yeah, there's lots of employment, but it's, it's low-paid, part-time, very much up and down, and where people are maxed out on their credit cards and other forms of credit, hmm. you're going to have to have a shift in the taxation mix because you've got the basic question of where will the customers come from to yeah. buy the stuff? Yeah. You, you can't run away from that, or to pay their rents, or to get to work. You know, you can take it as you like. So often policy is more a, a reaching for something that works rather than, oh, we will just choose to do this because nobody can stop us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes lots of sense. So, well, this has uh, been very interesting, and uh, we've got about a, a few minutes left, certainly. And yeah. um, what I was thinking, actually, is I'm sure people will be very interested to find out um, uh, one or two things about what either yourself, you, what you, Ken's doing at the moment uh, to advance the circular agenda, and or what the uh, Ellen MacArthur Foundation is uh, doing. Yeah, on sure. Um, I think the more interesting thing is the foundation itself. Uh, it was established in 2010, and uh, I've been there since the, the, the beginnings. Uh, it's about 100 and, 110 people now overall, not, not all in the Isle of Wight. We've been a dominant employer there sometimes, I think. But no, it's spread around in Europe. Uh, and elsewhere. And we really focus a lot on uh, large-scale material flows. We've done very excellent work, I think, around the plastics. We've been certainly involved in stimulating the recent upsurge in interest in trying to uh, design out the, the worst plastics or to deal with the ocean, ocean plastics problem. We've mm. been a uh, big stimulus in that. We've done a similar large-scale piece of work with textiles and that, that sort of materials, fibres, a fibres project and we're shifting into food now is, is one of the, the biggest things we're looking at is urban food systems uh, and um, we work on a number of levels we work with business and we work in learning and education and training and um, perhaps what we don't uh, spend so much time on is uh, the, the, we're not a membership organisation in sense we're not a, a, not working with the general 
public because we think there's some great organizations that do that. So we try and lobby and influence at business, at European level, at the United Nations, various bodies, that sort of level. So we're perhaps not well known in the way that some other mm. charities are, but we, we've chosen a slot there which, um, which, which we pretty much convinced is very, very useful. But it might explain why not that many people know about us because you can't sort of join in the way that you could join something, something more well known. Well, it's interesting because I, uh, my, my personal opinion is is that you are, you know, far more influential um, due to the, your way of uh, targeting uh, the influencers, particularly big business. Um, I know that Ellen herself goes out uh, to the World Economic Forum in Davos yeah. and speaks there, and it's um, it's you know it's where the leverage points are and. Um, Having a lot of fame can be kind of vanity, basically. It's about impact. And so, just uh, one final comment uh, before we start to close up. Love to know, because it's it's very much on people's minds at the moment, about uh, some of the things that you uh, feel that, you know, way the MacArthur Foundation has contributed to this kind of like the, the, the plastics and how that's been kind of really kind of taking a pace at the moment and changing oh. quite rapidly. So I just, I sort of missed what the question was in that, sorry, Adam. The, sorry, the question is, is how has the, the foundation uh, been involved in that? What sort of things yeah. have you uh, done uh, that you well, think has had that leverage impact? We've always been convinced that you need to take a, uh, it's a terrible word, but a systemic approach. Mm-hmm. And get all of the significant players around the table. We did that with the plastics in terms of major firms and influencers. And um, we also adopt this idea that it's by design. It's not by cleaning up. You've got to design things better. And we did a very useful report in plastics to say that some of the plastics produced have got no imaginable economic value. doesn't matter who picks them up, where, when, and how. They're pretty much impossible to deal with and get no return out of them. Yeah. Uh, and, and so these need designing out of the system. So we act as a stimulus both to pointing up those companies which are redesigning plastic and putting them in the same arena as sort of very much uh, as the big producers like Unilever and whatever. And, um, and they, see, they see the sense of that. This is where they were thinking it needed to go anyway. I think we were able to stimulate the pace and, uh, and, and help accelerate that transition. By putting the right people in the room together, we seem to be quite effective at doing that convening, which doesn't mean to say it solves all problems, but it catalyzes action at scale. And I think that's what we have a lot of people who are pretty expert at doing. I wouldn't include myself. I'm more on the, the education. I do a lot of work with universities mm. or the framing or the ideas end of things. But we have some real experts who are great at putting... Um, people together and getting an action, actionable result. I suppose that's what it is. And Ellen herself is inspirational in this. She's had that ability to simply persuade by being who she is. And that's a, I mean that's a great compliment because she is just who she seems to be, an authentic, purposeful individual who wants to see change and won't let things get in her way. Yeah, fabulous. That's a, a great finish for that because I, uh, I must agree with you that it's uh, 
it's been a delight to I've I've uh, been uh, introduced you at conferences, Ken, and um, it's always a delight to have conversations with you personally, either uh, off the stage or this conversation that we're going to be broadcasting to the world. And obviously, when you, I'd encourage anybody uh, to go and see Ken uh, if they can at an event. And but then also Ellen herself. Um, she is fabulous. I remember seeing her uh, speak just after the uh, foundation had been launched. And actually, I was uh, just by uh, lucky happenstance, I happened to be on a train um, going from Bradford, where the, uh, you've got an academic connection with, um, yeah. back to Leeds. And she had a 20-minute space where I think she was thinking to herself, well, I've not got much to do. So I got to spend 20 minutes talking one-on-one with Ellen, which I was felt very privileged yeah. to do because she's a, a, she's genuinely, you know, it was inspirational what she did in yeah. uh, going yes. around the world in a boat and then to yeah. take that and deliver the impact that she's done uh, along with colleagues like yourself is fabulous. So yeah. uh, I just want to finish by saying thank you so much. I've really been uh, inspired to hear that 321 that we uh, went through towards the start and then that kind of longer discussion finishing on, you know, but how plastics have been uh, really there's a change on that and you've been uh, kind of convening uh, that uh, change in part so uh, just finish off by first of all uh, Ken where can people find the foundation and yourself as well uh, online like Twitter and yeah, websites it's www.ellenmacarthurfoundation.org um, it's probably one of the longest URLs you might have to try and remember but the name itself is not hard to remember. Yeah. So org, and we've got all sorts of case studies. Uh, we've got contact emails and so on. And um, we've also got a Twitter account, as you might expect. And um, if you're interested in design, there's a circular design guide that's available on a, on a if you just put that in the website. Yeah. Uh, contacting me, you can do it through the foundation easily enough. I'm always keen to hear uh, about comments, thoughts, and uh, additional challenges or opportunities. So that would be good. And I'd like to thank you, Adam, very much for taking the time to put this call together. And uh, I also found it, it was really, really stimulating too. So, thank you. No, excellent. And if you want to just, uh, on the Twitter front, you're being very humble there. You'd, I know you have a Twitter account yourself. It's Circular yeah. Econ Ken. Um, yeah, I do. And yeah. then, is it, is it at Circular Economy, the, uh, the MacArthur Foundation? Uh, that's one, yeah, that's there, that Circular Economy. Yeah. And then, and then if anybody would like to follow myself, it's at Adam Woodhall, and you can find me, uh, that's for... Uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and then Inspiring Sustainability is also on uh, Facebook, you can find me there and of, of course there's my uh, www.inspiring-sustainability.com where you can find more about myself and also the other podcasts that I've been doing um, over the, the last uh, year or so and so I just want to finish by uh, Ken, well it's a privilege to be speaking to you and for you to be giving your time up, thank you so much um, so I just want to, th- on behalf of the listeners and, and particularly myself, I just want to finish by uh, very much uh, thanking you. Okay, bye for now. Right, bye bye, and uh, thank you to the listeners for uh, listening to the end here. It's been great to have you. Thank you.